Good afternoon. Happy Mother's Day. It is a, a joy and a blessing to be here on the Lord's Day together. If you want to open your Bibles with me to the book of Judges, if they're not already open there, that's where we'll be spending our time today. We just recently in our congregational Bible reading finished the book of Judges this past week. Um, and if you've been following along in that, you may have noticed that Judges is among the most jammed, packed with sin and immorality and moral filth of any book in the Bible. If you were to make a movie out of the book of Judges, it would not be fit to watch. Uh, and so if this is your first time reading through the book of Judges, you might have been left a little shocked thinking, well, why, why are some of these things in the Bible? Why are some of these gruesome and ungodly and immoral and filthy things recorded for us? I, I hope today and, uh, in fact, next week as well, to, to spend a little bit of time talking about the message of the book of Judges and why it's in the Bible. As we look at any book of the Bible, we need to remember that the Bible, first and foremost, is the autobiography of God. That its intention is not just some self-help book, but more than anything, it's intended to communicate God to us, to show us his character, who he is, and thus his will and what he desires from us. So the question that we really need to be asking as we approach a book like Judges is, what does it teach us about God? Because the hero of the story isn't Deborah or Gideon or Jephthah and certainly not Samson. The hero of the story is God. And so what does God, what does the book of Judges teach us about God? I want to talk about plumbing the depths of God's mercy. Because I think more than anything, what we see of God in the book of Judges is his long-suffering nature, his grace, his mercy, his steadfast love. Judges sometimes is talked about as a cycle. That as we read just a moment ago with, with Jonathan, uh, that for a time when Israel cried out to the Lord, he'd bring them a judge, he would deliver them, and yet they would go right back to their old sins, and then God would bring another oppressor upon them. But I really think the book of Judges is not primarily a cycle. It is a downward spiral. Uh, and by the end of the book of Judges, chapter 17 through 21 that we read this past week, we see the very bottom of the barrel, the very bottom of this downward spiral of immorality. But the more and more we see the depths of God's people's sinfulness, the more and more we see the depths of his mercy and continuing time after time, generation after generation to, to reach out to them. I think there's a great deal that we can learn as we think about our relationship with God to understand his mercy from this book. And so with that in mind, I, I want us to just study through Judges today, I hope we can look through chapters 1 through 9 together uh, and see what we learn of God's character and in particular his mercy throughout this book. As we begin the book of Judges, we see that chapter 1 and 2 record two different perspectives of apostasy for us as Israel forsakes the Lord. Uh, in the beginnings of this apostasy in chapter 1, we see this from a historical perspective. Uh, a failure to drive out the Canaanites. And Israel starts off real strong at the beginning of chapter one, after the death of Joshua, 
you see that they inquire of the Lord and say, who should lead us now? Moses has been leading us. Joshua was leading us. Now we still have conquering to do. Who's going to lead us? God says, well, Judah. Judah is going to begin the tribe of Judah. And so Judah and Simeon work together to begin conquering the territory in their land. We see the unity of God's people working together to fulfill his purpose. But as we continue reading here in Judges 1, we begin to get indications that they're not completely following through on what God commissioned for them to do. In chapter 1 and verse 19, it says, The Lord was with Judah, and he took possession of the hill country, but he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. Reminds you back in Numbers when the, the spies were sent into the land and they said, well, we can't do it because the, the people are too strong. They have fortified cities. They were like grasshoppers in their sight. Well, here Judah is following the Lord, but there seems to be a limit of Judah's capability or at least his faith uh, in the Lord in following through with this. They don't drive out those that were in the plain. In verse 21, we see Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. Down in verse 27, Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Bethshean and its villages and so on and so forth. Verse 28 says, when Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not drive them out completely. Verse 29, Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer. Zebulun in verse 30 did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron and so on and so forth. I want you to notice the transition that happens in verse 31, though. Up until now, it's been saying that the Canaanites lived among them. You see that in verse 30? Notice what it then says in verse 31. Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Akko or the inhabitants of Sidon or Alab, Ikzib or Helba or Ithek or Rehob. So the Asherites lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. Do you, do you see how that swapped? First, the Canaanites were living among them. Now they're living among the Canaanites. And it said the same of Naphtali in verse 33. And by the time we get to verse 34, it says, The Amorites pressed the people of Dan back into the hill country, for they did not allow them to come down into the plain. Here, they're not even inhabiting their land anymore. They're being pushed out. And by the end of the book of Judges, we'll see that Dan is looking for another land because they can't take the one that they were supposed to. And so chapter one shows us from this historical perspective that they are failing to do what God has told them to do. God had waited for many years until the iniquity of the Amorites were full, but now God is bringing judgment upon the Canaanites and using his people as the instrument of judgment, and yet they are not faithful in doing that. But as we get to chapter 2, you might notice that chapter 1 began with the death of Joshua. Well, in chapter 2, Joshua is alive again, um, <laughs> because we see down in verse 6, it says, When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. What we have here is two records of the same thing. Uh, it's not chronological here. One record begins in chapter 1, now another record in chapter 2. But notice what it says uh, about Israel's failure here in chapter 2 and verse 1. It says, Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim, and he said, 
I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides and their gods shall be a snare to you. What's the real problem here? Is it that Israel just wasn't strong enough? That they, they didn't have the, the proper uh, you know, military tactics or the top proper military equipment to fulfill what God had told them to do? No, it's that they did not obey the Lord. And in fact, it's a consequence of their disobedience that God says, I'm not going to drive out the people of the land. They're going to be a thorn in your side because you were not willing to obey me. And utterly wiping out the, the remnants of their idolatry, it is going to be a snare to you. If you look later on in chapter 2 and verse 10, it says, And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals, and they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies, so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Why is it that they can't withstand their enemies? Why is it that this oppression is coming upon them? Well, it's because they have forsaken, abandoned the God of their fathers in favor of the gods of the peoples. That's the beginning of the seeds of apostasy here. And I think this is challenging for us to think about because we look at, you know, this new generation that has arisen during the, the time period of Joshua. That there was that unfaithfulness of those people in the wilderness, but they've seen uh, the error of their ways and this new generation is coming up and they're going to enter into the land. They see God part the, the waters of the, the Jordan or push it back. They see God bring the walls of Jericho down. Certainly this generation is going to be the one to remain faithful. And yet just a generation removed from that, we see they are completely abandoning the Lord. What's the problem? Well, they weren't teaching their children the way that they needed to. There rises a generation that does not know the Lord. And they are becoming more influenced by the, the thinking of the peoples around them than by the teaching of their forefathers. They have abandoned the God of their fathers for the gods of the peoples. I think that's uh, something for us to, to think very seriously about in our lives. How much are we influenced by the culture and the thinkings and the priorities of the peoples around us, of the world in which we live, above that of the, the faith of our forefathers passed down to us through the revelation of the scriptures? It's very easy to begin to, to think like the world rather than letting God and his revelation and the information about his mighty deeds and his character be the primary influence of our thinking. So how does God respond to all this unfaithfulness? Look in verse 16. I think this verse is very powerful in showing us the message of the book of Judges. 
chapter 2 and verse 16, it says, Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. When you think of the word judge, what do you normally think of? You know, he raised up judges to judge them, right? Isn't that what a judge is supposed to do? No, but it says he raised up judges who saved them. And that, brethren, is the character of our God. Uh, While God sells them into the hands of oppressors, allowing them to experience the hardship of serving earthly masters instead of him, he does not cease reaching out to them in mercy. He sends them judges, not primarily to execute judgment upon them, but to deliver them and provide them a means of salvation from his judgment. God's mercy doesn't contradict his justice. It doesn't conflict with his justice. But it does triumph over his judgment. God doesn't just judge us in his justice. He justifies us in his justice. We've studied that recently um, in uh, Romans 5 verse 26. That he is just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Uh, And so God in his justice isn't just wanting to bring about our judgment. In fact, he wants more than anything to bring about our justification. Uh, 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9 says he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and pardon us from all unrighteousness. You might, when you think of God's faithfulness and justice, you might think he is faithful and just to judge us. No, he's faithful and just to offer us forgiveness. So God himself is a judge, but he is a judge whose primary mission is to save us. And that's what he shows Israel through the judges that he raises up for them. As we get into chapter 3, we see the first of these judges is Othniel. Um, here, at this time, God sells his people into the hand of Cushan Rishathaim, uh, literally Cushan of double wickedness um, of Mesopotamia, and they're oppressed for eight years. But he raises up Othniel. Um, and we see that Othniel is somewhat of a model savior. He, he is kind of the, the top of this downward spiral that we're going to see in the book of Judges. And this isn't the first time that we hear the name of Othniel in chapter 3. In fact, back in chapter 1, we were told about him during the conquest of the land. If you look in chapter 1, verse 12, it says, And Caleb said, He who attacks Kiriath-sephir and captures it, I will give him Akshish, my daughter, for a wife. And Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, captured it, and he gave him Akshish, his daughter, for a wife. Here, Othniel is taking the lead and bringing about the conquest of the land, obeying God as they were intended to wipe out the Canaanites. He is very zealous in that, and we see that he shares in the same faith as Caleb. Uh, He is, likely the language here indicates that he's Caleb's nephew. Um, And you remember Joshua and Caleb, who stood up and said, no, God can Take the land. God can give us victory over the Canaanites. Well, that's the same faith that lives on in Othniel. We see even Mary's into that same faith, the daughter of Caleb, which is going to be a strong contrast to some of the later judges like Samson that are constantly going after foreign uh, women that are serving foreign gods. 
And so Othniel forms this top of the downward spiral in the book of Judges, and what little we know about him forms a model by which every subsequent judge can be contrasted. And so Israel, after his deliverance, has rest for 40 years. But then we come to Ehud. Um, Once again, Israel is unfaithful, and they are oppressed by Eglon, king of Moab, who uh, joins with the Ammonites and the Amalekites to take over the city of Jericho uh, and oppresses them for 18 years. But Ehud arises out of the tribe of Benjamin, and Ehud is actually the messenger that is bringing tribute to King Eglon. But when he brings tribute to King Eglon, he tells them that he has a secret message. Um, and everyone goes out, and we see here where uh, we, we start to see the very gruesome violence of the book of Judges. Ehud takes a dagger and thrusts it into Eglon's belly, and it's swallowed up whole uh, by, by the fat uh, of Eglon. And it says that the refuse pours out. Uh, Ehud escapes and Eglon's servants, probably smelling the refuse, think that he needs some privacy. And so it gives time for Ehud to escape and gather an army to drive out the, the, the Moabites. Why are all these gory details told to us? You know, th- this is really the first of many very graphic and violent stories in the book of Judges. Why, why does God include all of that? I think part of the reason... Uh, is because salvation is often accomplished through dreadful acts of judgment. We ultimately see that upon the cross itself. It reminds us of the ugliness of sin and its horrific cost. Salvation is often a messy business. We might call Ehud uh, a gruesome savior here. It's not something that God accomplishes from the far distant solitude of his ivory citadel in the skies. It is something that is costly and painful and requires him to reach down into the filth of our lives and snatch us up out of it. Sin is ugly and repugnant. And so bringing judgment upon it uh, in order those that under its impression may be set free is not always going to be a pretty thing. I I like what one commentator uh, named Dale Ralph David said. He said, the glory of this text is that it tells us that Yahweh is not a white glove standoffish God out somewhere in the remote left field of the universe who hesitates to get his strong right arm dirty in the yuck of our lives. Yes, God is holy and righteous and pure, but that doesn't mean that the ugliness or filth of our sins, the brokenness that they cause or the guilt and consequences that they bear are too great that he just can't stomach it, and so he's just going to kind of stand separate from that. Now, God reaches down even into the, the, the filth of our lives, getting his hands dirty, so to speak, not compromising his holiness and purity. But he reaches down into our messy lives and pulls us back towards fellowship with him. And this isn't the last time we're going to see this concept in Judges. We'll see it with Jael and Sisera. We'll see it later on. Uh, and, and many other stories. Salvation is a messy business. Judges is a messy book because when we become uh, enslaved to our sins, sometimes what it takes to bring us out of that, uh, the judgment that our sin requires, uh, is something that, that is uh, often gruesome in nature. 
I think as we think about that for our lives, uh, we need to be willing to show the same kind of love and mercy to the broken world around us and the messy lives of people that we encounter as we seek to offer them freedom from the bondage of sin. Sometimes our attitude is more standoffish. You know, we, we, we don't want to reach down into the, the, the filth of somebody's life to help them out of that because, well, we, we can't have anything to do with that. Well, God didn't stand separate from our sins. He sent his own son to take on flesh, to experience the, the gruesome nature of death and its consequences in order that he might save us. May we have that same type of mercy towards others. You might think after Ehud that we would proceed to talk about Deborah, but it's interesting the deliverer here is not Deborah, it is Barak, somebody that we often overlook. Uh, Once again, God's people are unfaithful in chapters 4 and 5. They're oppressed by Jabin, king of Canaan, and his commander Sisera. They're oppressed for 20 years. But Barak uh, is actually the one listed among the deliverers, not Deborah. We can see this in 1 Samuel chapter 12 when Samuel gives his farewell address before they appoint a king. He reminds them in 1 Samuel 12 and verse 11, And the Lord sent Jeroboam, or Gideon, and Barak, and Jephthah, and Samuel, and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side. So there, Barak is included. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 11, the chapter on faith, at the very end of that chapter, uh, Hebrews 11, verse 32, and it says, And what shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel, and the prophets. Why is it that we often focus on Deborah rather than Barak? Well, I, I think it's a, a rather good reason. Deborah is the one who was said to judge Israel. And in fact, Barak uh, was told that he was going to be the one who was not going to receive glory. Um, God expressly says that Barak will not receive the honor because of the weakness of his faith and his unwillingness to lead as God instructed. Barak is ultimately an example of failed male leadership. He would only obey if he could follow in the shadow of Deborah's faith. Look with me in Judges chapter 4, starting in verse 4. Judges 4 and verse 4 says, Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you? Go, gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun, and I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give them in your hand. Verse 8, Barak said to her, If you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. Here, the way that Deborah approaches Barak seems to indicate that Barak may have already known that this is what God wanted him to do. Uh, She says, has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you? Um... 
Possibly he was already instructed to do this and he was needing a little bit of extra encouragement to do it. But notice Barak's response there. He says, I will surely, uh, I, I will go if you will go with me. Um, Barak sets a condition on his obedience. He will obey God, but on his own terms. He lacks the faith in the Lord and courage in his service to take the leadership role on his own. Uh, Is it possible that Barak is expecting Deborah to say no? (laughs) Is it possible that he's saying, well, well, yeah, I'll go, but you got to go with me. Maybe it's to his surprise that she says, well, yes, I will go with you, um, but you're not going to gain the glory. And so here we see that this failure on Barak's part and is again instructive for us. Um, what about us? Are we only willing to follow the Lord if we're able to follow somebody else in doing it? Do we have the courage and the commitment, the conviction to follow God, even if it's only us who's doing it? Or do we have to find refuge in the faith of our parents and the faith of our spouse and the faith of uh, our, our brethren, our preacher, our friends? Or are we willing to be faithful to the Lord and follow him even if it's us who are the only ones doing it? Is our faith based on the Lord or based in some way on somebody else? We need to make sure that in our faithfulness to God's commands and our pursuit of his work, that we're not simply riding on the coattails of somebody else's faith and courage, but that we ourselves have a personal commitment to the Lord and his will. Yet again, we see God's mercy because God doesn't allow the lack of Barak's conviction or the weakness of his faith to stop him from showing mercy and delivering Israel by any means necessary. Despite the weakness of Barak's faith, God uses him all the same. Um, And it's interesting as we get into chapter 5 in the song of Deborah, this song talks about some tribes of Israel who failed to show up for the battle. Uh, If you look in verse 16 and 17, the song says, Why did you sit still among the sheepfolds to hear the whistling for the flocks? Among the clans of Reuben there was great searchings of heart. Verse 17, Gilead stayed beyond the Jordan. And Dan, why did he stay with the ships? Asher sat still at the coast of the sea, staying by his lands. Multiple tribes fail to show up. They don't have the type of commitment to join Barak in this, uh, the type of courage and faith in the Lord's strength to overcome their opponents. Um, but it's interesting, the one by whom God does bring them deliverance is a woman and a foreigner. Uh, Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, who was supposed to be on Sisera's side, who was supposed to be uh, in alliance with him, ultimately God brings deliverance through her in a very unconventional and once again gruesome way. Um, And so God, even when his own people are not being faithful, even when his own people are hesitant and lack the type of conviction and faith to follow him, finds a way to bring about deliverance in his mercy. But we see then that Israel has rest for 40 years, but once again, as we go on this downward spiral, they're unfaithful, and God brings them oppression during the days of Gideon, oppression by Midianite raiders who continue to come into the land uh, and take all of their crops. They're oppressed by them for seven years. 
But notice there's something different going on here in Judges chapter 6. If you look in Judges chapter 6, starting in verse 7, God does not initially bring them a savior. Initially, he sends them a prophet. In Judges chapter 6, starting in verse 7, it says, When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery. I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians, from the hand of all who oppressed you, and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. God's been sending deliverers, but at this point, he wants to make sure that they understand why this keeps happening. You have been unfaithful. You have not obeyed my voice. This, that's why this oppression is coming upon you. Well, what would we expect next? As we read through the text, we'd expect, well, okay, this prophet comes either... The prophet's going to say, you've disobeyed, therefore, God's going to continue to bring this punishment upon you. Or we're going to hear that the people have heard his message and they've repented. Well, neither of those is what we hear next. The very next thing that we read is that God sends his angel to go bring up a deliverer, to bring Gideon. There's no indication of repentance whatsoever in the text. And yet God, in his abundant mercy, continues to raise up saviors and hopes that they will bring back his people from their immorality. You notice in the story of Gideon what the very first thing he's commissioned to do is. Look with me in uh, chapter 6, starting in verse 25. It says, That night the Lord said to him, Take your father's bull. And the second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has and cut down the Asherah that is beside it and build an altar to the Lord your God on the top of the stronghold here with stones laid in due order. Then take the second bull and offer it as burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah that you shall cut down. So Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. When the men of the town rose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was broken down and the Asherah beside it was cut down. And the second bull was offered on the altar that had been built. And they said to one another, who has done this thing? And after they had searched and inquired, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash has done this thing. Then the men of the town said to Joash, Bring out your son that he may die, for he has broken down the altar of Baal and cut down the Asherah beside it. Have the people of Israel repented? Have they turned back to the Lord? No, in fact, Gideon's own father seems to be a leading man in this town, and he has an altar to Baal and an Asherah statue next to it. And God first commissions him, before, before you're going to save my people, you're first going to have to tear down this altar and this idol. So Gideon, though he's afraid, does do that. And what, how do the people react? They say, finally, somebody's leading us back to the Lord. No, they say, he's going to die. He's torn down our gods. You know, in the old law, what the penalty was for idolatry? The death penalty. 
they're the ones that should have been <laughs> killed for their idolatry and for their unfaithfulness to the Lord. And yet they want to impose the death penalty upon Gideon because he's torn down their idol and their altar. Here, despite the immorality of God's people, despite how committed they are to these foreign gods, God is raising up Gideon and giving them an opportunity, trying to bring them back towards himself. And Gideon is himself not very strong in his faith. He first, when approached by the Lord, questioned whether or not the Lord was among them. But God gives him great assurance time and time again that he will save Israel by his hand. First of all, in chapter 6, we see this in verse 16 and 17. As he's first approached by the angel of the Lord, verse 16, it says, And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. Verse 17, And he said to him, If now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. So Gideon requests a sign, and God in his mercy grants that sign. Gideon brings an offering, uh, and the angel touches the rock which that offering is on with his staff and fire springs up from the rock and consumes the offering and then the angel vanishes away but that's not the only sign that God gives later on in chapter 6 as Gideon is now preparing to fight against the Midianites in chapter 6 verse 36 it says then Gideon said to God if you will save Israel by my hands as you have said Behold, I am laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand as you have said. How is Gideon going to know that God's going to do what he said? Well, in Gideon's mind, it's not just because God said so and therefore it's going to happen. It's, God, I need you to give me a sign. I need to give you me some reassurance. And God, in his mercy and in his grace, gives him that sign. He doesn't just give it once. He, in fact, gives it twice on a subsequent night, doing the very opposite to once again reassure Gideon. So it's not the greatness of Gideon's faith that convinces God to bring deliverance upon his people. While Gideon does eventually act in faith, God has been extremely patient and accommodating to the weakness of his faith. Even one more time in chapter 7. If you look in chapter 7, verse 9, it says, That same night the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. But if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Purah, your servant. And you shall hear what they say, and afterward your hands will be strengthened to go down against the camp. This time, uh, it's not by the, the request of Gideon. God, in his grace, extends another sign. He tells him, goes down to the camp, and Gideon hears the vision of one of the men of the camp of Midian that he had, that a barley loaf rolled in, and the tent uh, of the Midianites fell down. And he recognizes that uh, that is uh, a vision showing that Gideon is going to uh, bring about, that God through Gideon is going to bring about the, the conquering of the Midianites. And so God four times reassures Gideon. God doesn't extend his mercy 
because the repentance of his people convinced him to. He doesn't extend his mercy because the faith of some great man convinced him to. God extended his mercy because he is merciful. I think we need to think about that in our relationship with the Lord as well. Sometimes we think that, that our repentance somehow convinces God that, to be merciful to us. That's not the case at all. No, God wants to forgive us. God is doing everything possible to bring us to repentance. He is extending his mercy even when we are in utter rebellion and enmity towards him. Romans chapter 5 talks about how Jesus came when we were still ungodly. Sinners, enemies of God. And yet God shows us his mercy. I think it's a great comfort to know that God is mindful of our weakness and patient in allowing us time to grow. Psalm 103 verse 14 says, For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. We see that patience with Gideon in the weakness of his faith. But God goes on to try to ensure that Israel recognizes that it is his power that has brought this deliverance upon them. That they don't give credit to themselves, they don't give credit to Gideon. And so while they start out with 32,000 men, God says, that's too many. Go tell them, anybody who's afraid, to go home. What's interesting is Gideon himself probably should have gone home at that point as well. But 22,000, two-thirds of the army goes home because they're afraid. So they're left with a third of what they had before, and God says, no, it's still too many. I know you. (laughs) You're going to take credit for yourselves. And so God prescribes a somewhat arbitrary uh, test here to whittle down the people further. They go down to the water and those who don't kneel down next to it, but bring the water up to their mouth and and lap like a dog, it says, those are the ones that I'm going to save Israel by. I I think it's interesting. Sometimes uh, people have tried to, to place some significance on this test. That, well, those people that are standing up, they're not kneeling down. Well, those people are the more vigilant. They're the more alert. I think that misses the point entirely. It has nothing to do with these people. Uh, It's not that they're more equipped and they're stronger and that's why God's choosing them. He doesn't need strong people. He doesn't need vigilant people. God can deliver them however he wants. It has nothing to do with them. It has everything to do with God making sure that they know that it is his power and not their own. Well, how does that work out? Well, ultimately... Israel still gives credit to human hands more than the hand of the Lord. Notice the the war cry that these people give. We see this down in verse 20 of chapter 7. They blow the trumpets and they cry out, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Wait a second. Who are we fighting for? I think we're starting to, even in that phrase, see that, yes, we're fighting for the Lord and also for Gideon. They begin, at this point even, to give credit to human hands. I think we're going to see that that leads to a great deal more of pride on their part. As we get down to Judges chapter 8, verse 1 through 3, notice the reaction of the men of Ephraim. 
Once God does bring them deliverance through these 300 men, it says, Then the men of Ephraim said to him, What is this that you have done to us, not to call us when you went to fight against Midian? And they accused him fiercely. And he, being Gideon, said to them, What have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the grape harvest of Abiezer? God has given into your hands the princes of Midian, Oreb, and Zeb. What have I been able to do in comparison with you? Then their anger against him subsided when he said this. Do you notice what's going on there? Now he does give a credit to the Lord. He says, God has given them into your hand. But what, what's, what's their argument against Gideon? They said, well, why didn't you call us? You didn't give us any of the glory in the battle. You took all the glory for yourself. And so they accuse him fiercely. And the way that he uh, assuages their, their anger here is by saying, well, no, I'm not really the hero. You're the hero. You took the princes, Oreb and Zeb. You guys did a lot better than I did. And they say, oh, yeah, you're right. Okay, we're okay now. God had gone to great lengths to make sure that they recognized it wasn't about Gideon. It wasn't about his 300 men. It wasn't about the size of their army, their military tactics, their great ability. It was about him. And yet, at the very first, we see that they begin to give credit and glory to themselves. Gideon goes on to pursue Ziba and Zalmunna, the, the kings of Midian. And when he finally catches up with them, notice in verse 21 what Ziba and Zalmunna say to him. In Judges chapter 8, verse 21, it says, Then Ziba and Zalmunna said, Rise yourself and fall upon us. For as the man is, so is his strength. And Gideon arose and killed Ziba and Zalmunna. And he took the crescent ornaments that were on the necks of their camels. Here, the, these foreign kings say, Well, show us how, how good of a king you are. Show us how, how strong you are. And Gideon follows through with that to show them his strength. And so as we get to verse 22 here, notice how the people of Israel react. It says in Judges 8, 22, then the men of Israel said to Gideon, rule over us, you and your sons and your grandsons also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. They're giving credit to Gideon. Now Gideon knows that that's not right. He knows that that's not where credit should be given. He says there in verse 23, it says, Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. But that's not the last word. Verse 24, and Gideon said to them, let me make a request of you. Every one of you give me the earrings from his spoil for they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And they answered, we will willingly give them. And they spread a cloak and every man threw in, uh, in it the earrings of his spoil and the weight of the golden earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold. Besides the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian and besides the collars that were around the necks of the camels. And Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in his city in Ophrah and all Israel whored after it there. And it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. Does that sound somewhat familiar? It sounds a lot like what they did when they made the calves during the days of Aaron at Mount Sinai as well. So Gideon recognizes that he's not supposed to take glory. He's not supposed to take authority here. But he still has them basically put up a monument in his honor. 
and takes it back to his city. And it becomes an idol that they serve rather than the Lord. You see how horribly corrupt Israel is becoming. That even when God goes to great lengths to reach out in mercy to them, even when they hadn't repented, when God goes to great lengths to make sure they understand that it is his power and not their own, they immediately go back, give credit to man. They immediately go back to idolatry. It's interesting, Gideon uh, ends up having 70 sons. He has many wives. It sounds a lot like some of the later kings of Israel. He even has a foreign concubine there in verse 31. And notice his son's name is Abimelech. Do you know what Abimelech means? It means my father is king. I don't know if Gideon picked out that name himself. It kind of sounds like he did. Or if it was his wife that picked out that name. But it seems that even though he had kind of protested, he ultimately kind of takes on the role of honorary king, at least. Because by the time we get to chapter 9, Abimelech makes the argument to the people of Shechem in verse 2. He says, Say in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, which is better for you, that all 70 of the sons of Jeroboam rule over you, or that one rule over you? Now, what's better is that the Lord rule over us. <laughs> but in Abimelech's mind, well, it's, it's either one of these other sons or it's going to be me. They have come to expect that even though Gideon had previously protested, that he ultimately will take this role and his sons will take this role of king. And so we see in chapter 8, verse 28, it says that during the days of Gideon, God gave them rest for 40 years, but this is actually the last time in the book of Judges that we see that they had any rest. Because as they become more and more corrupt, we see that their oppression is not only from without, but from within. Abimelech is going to murder all of his brothers so that he can take the throne. And things are just going to get worse from here. But while this is the end of Israel's rest, this is not the end of God's mercy. Notice we, we've only gotten through chapter 9. We still have another 12 chapters to go, and we already see how low in this spiral of immorality Israel has become. And yet God is not done reaching out in mercy. In fact, when the book of Judges ends, God is not done reaching out in mercy. Through the days of Saul, through the days of the divided kingdom, through the days of captivity, through the days of the return, when they continue to disobey the Lord, through the days of the death of his own son upon the cross, through the days of you and I today, in this broken and immoral world in which we live, in which we have been a part of. God continues to reach out in mercy, generation after generation after generation. And so I, I hope next week to talk a little bit more about some of the final judges, but I want us to think about application for us as we close. The story does not end here. Ultimately, it continues even today. And what we need to understand above all else as we read this is that the mercy of the Lord endures forever. That's in Psalm 136. That's a refrain that occurs in every single verse of that psalm. And it's a refrain that shows up in other places in Israel's hymns. In fact, once they return from the captivity, that's one thing that they sing as they rebuild the temple.
His mercy endures forever. His mercy endures today as well. In the New Testament, 2 Peter chapter 3 says, The Lord is not slow about his promises, as some count slowness, but he is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Why is it that Jesus hasn't come again? You know, it's been 2,000 years. When is it that Jesus is going to come? Well, what Peter is telling us is not that God forgot. The reason the sun rose this morning is because God still wants somebody to be saved. The reason you and I are here is because of God's mercy. If it wasn't for God's mercy, we would have three chapters in our Bible and it would be over. And sometimes we talk about, well, why is the world so broken? Why is there so much suffering and evil in the world? You want to know why? Because God could have wiped us all out at the very beginning, but he didn't. Why is it that he allows his people to get so corrupt in the book of Judges? Because of his mercy. Because God is continuing to reach out, even in our moral filth, even in our rebellion and enmity to him, God still wants to bring back a remnant who will love him and serve him and enjoy the fellowship, the joy of his presence for all eternity. What about you today? Did the sun rise this morning because God wants you to be saved? Because you're not in a right relationship with him. God's continuing to reach out in mercy. And there may be a limit on our willingness to repent and our willingness to return to him, but there is not a limit on God's mercy. As long as you still draw breath, it doesn't matter how filthy and how horrible, how rebellious in your sin you have been. If you are willing to come back to the Lord, he is still reaching out to you. Reaching out to you so much that he was willing to shed the blood of his own son that you could be saved. If you need to come to him today, if you need to confess your sins before him, confess your belief in Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God, by his grace, you can put to death the old man of sin. You can be nailed to the cross with Jesus. You can bury that old man in the waters of baptism. And you can be raised to walk in newness of life. There's no better testament to his mercy than his willingness to forgive us through the sacrifice of his son. Do you need that forgiveness today? If you have made that commitment, you have buried the old man of sin, but you've dug him back up and he's living in your life in some way that you need to, to bring back to the Lord. If there's anything that we can do to help you in your relationship with the Lord, that's why we're here. If you're subject to the Lord's invitation, won't you make that known to us as we stand and sing together?